Hello, hello, podcast fans. I'm here with your favorite podcast host and soon-to-be additional book author, Barbara Bray. <laughs> Hi there, Mom. Uh, hi, Andrew. Oh, my gosh. It's you brought nice. that up. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always going to get excited for you to plug the cool things that you're up to. So with that in mind, I know oh. that our upcoming conversationalist is going to be somebody that has a story in your book. Could I ask you a little bit about um, this collection of stories? Oh, well, it's called Grow Your Why, One Story at a Time. And everyone that's in my book has been on my podcast. And they, I asked them to write how they either defined their why, they journeyed their why, or they grew their why. So there's three sections. And so there's 23 authors. And they're amazing. They're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that, I wish that as part of the book, we could just have your interjections in the middle of their stories. Just, that's so cool. Oh my gosh. Um, So, so, so readers out there, when you're reading this book, uh, I, I, I don't think that you're able to do this, but you might just want to like tack in some pictures of Barbara Bray smiling in some of the key <laughs> moments. Well, yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out if I want to make an audio version and ask each of them to write to share their story, but I don't know if that will happen. But it is so cool. I'm really excited about it. And this person that's on this podcast is uh, a contributor. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about this person. Oh, it's Jennifer Klein. She. I really just recently met her because she interviewed me from what what school could be when they did a book study of Define Your Why. And pretty soon I'm looking at her with her purple hair and all her stories and going, oh my gosh, I want to know more about you. And soon finding out some of the things she's done. She's an author. She's written she's written one and co-authored another that are amazing books. And one of them I actually have on my shelf. I was like, ah. I know you. (laughs) And some of her stories of some of the travels and where she's taught, I'm just so blown away by her and Mm. honored that she wanted to write a book, a chapter in the book. So yes, Jennifer Klein. And I can't wait for people to meet her. All right. Stick around, folks. We're going to go on a good ride with Barbara Bray and Jennifer Klein. really excited. I have this wonderful person I've been wanting to talk to, Jennifer D. Klein. Jennifer, I'm so glad you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. Can't wait for the conversation. Oh, me too. So I'm going to boast about you to my audience. Uh, Is that okay? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So Jennifer is a product of experiential project-based education herself, and she lives and breathes the student-centered pedagogies used to educate her. Ooh, I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I feel very fortunate that I was educated that way. Yeah, I mean, really, not everyone has that. So we're going to talk about that. And you're also a former head of school with extensive international experience and over 30 years in education, including 19 in the classroom. That's, I mean, I, that's about me. I've been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a long trajectory. It was, you know, yeah, long trajectory. 
Wow. So Jennifer facilitates dynamic interactive workshops for teachers, leaders, and students working to amplify student voice to provide the tools for high-quality project-based learning in all cultural and socioeconomic contexts and to shift school culture to support such practices. Phew, I got all that out and I'm so excited. This is so wonderful to talk with you about this because, you know, I've been doing learner-centered and trying to talk about why we're here and all of this. So I want to ask you about your why. What is your why? Well, I think my why has actually morphed over time. Um, As a young person, I was really, really focused on this idea of becoming a fiction writer. That was what I believed I was on this planet to do. It's what I studied in both my bachelor's and my master's degree. But my, my direction was changed a lot when I first entered the high school classroom in particular. I had done a little bit of teaching when I was doing my master's degree at CU Boulder. Um, I was teaching, you know, introduction to writing, critical writing, that kind of thing for college students. I decided after my master's to move to Costa Rica in Central America and sort of accidentally ended up teaching in an international school there. It wasn't my intention necessarily, but it was where the jobs were. So I became a high school English uh, teacher and almost immediately started to feel my why shifting. Uh, And it was because of the stories of these young people, right? It was these incredible opportunities, these incredible um, moments and experiences with young people who were, and in my case, I was teaching 10th grade. So they were 15 to 16 years old. Um, they, they had a certain amount of privilege in their lives, but they were also trying to figure out who they were and what they wanted to do with their lives. And I had students who were, who were, you know, scared to come out of the closet, who were able to come out of the closet to me. I had students who seemed to be a little confused about their direction in life, who started to find some clarity because of the space that I created, the safe space I created in my classroom. And all of a sudden, what I wanted to do with my life shifted. My, my writing became about them and about what it meant to create that safe space, which I had experienced myself in my own education. Um, and and my, my passion started, it was the merging of those two passions, right? The love of writing and this incredible opportunity to make the world a better place by helping young people find their way and find their power when it came to making things better in their own communities. Um, so, so I think my why is twofold. It's both the writer's life and the educator. Looking back now, I, I think I'm fulfilling both in a lot of ways. That's very strange because that's kind of my why, you know, it's so that's maybe why I connected with you is because this whole idea of um, trying to make a world a better place, which is seems very lofty for one person anyway, you know, it's a lot, but you have a lot of experiences doing these and traveling to other countries and seeing some of the same things you experienced as a child in the, you know, in these children. And that's what I saw when I was working in some of the schools I was working and they were um, title one schools. Mm -hmm. And I saw, wow, I thought, here I am a white person and middle class. And I felt uncomfortable in school. And then I saw these kids. So it seems like it, it, it's kind of neat that that happened to you because you have taken this on. It's, it's like amazing. You've taken it on. Do you want to kind of go explain a little bit about kind of why you 
Um, well, man, you already said the why, but that idea of going to Costa Rica or going into an international school, did that change it other than just, I mean, now you're still doing international, mm-hmm. right? Yes, I do a great deal of international work. You know, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I went to these experiential schools growing up. So I was I was a student at a small um, independent school outside of Philadelphia um, in the Rose Valley area when I was very young. The school in Rose Valley is the name of the school. Very student-centered. I was there through third grade um, and then came to Colorado. My family moved to Colorado, and I got to attend the open school here in, in the Denver area. It's in Jefferson County. This is a school that was founded by uh, incredible thought leaders and radical educators like Arnie Langberg, who was a major influence on my thinking. So much of my experience was outside the United States. Um, And as a uh, high school student in particular, uh, I did three passages, which are a little bit like the walkabout methodology, right, where students do these major um, independent projects. I had a walkabout. I did three of my uh, passage projects. Um, by living at, and working for my living in uh, in the Middle East, in Israel-Palestine as a teenager. I was there for six months and then traveled in Europe for two months. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, it, the experience definitely broke my heart in many, many ways, um, seeing so many groups in conflict um, over land, over religion, over so many things. Um, but I also think that in, in so many ways, my childhood set me up for, for an international life, right? So I was saying to somebody the other day that when it's my birthday, I rarely have a big celebration locally because my friends are all over the world, right? I have a, a sense of community that goes well beyond the Denver area where I happen to live right now. And I think, you know, I, I the decision to go to Costa Rica at the end of my master's was sort of a leap back into the world. It was something that I was really you know, I wasn't quite sure what my next step was going to be after my master's. I didn't, I, you know, I was surrounded by so much talent in my master's degree. And, and I'll give you an example. I went to school with um, Luis Alberto Orea, who has won tons of book awards uh, for his fiction, right? I, I was sitting side by side in class with people who have gone on to be extraordinarily successful in fiction. Um, but I wasn't necessarily sure that that was actually what was going to happen for me, right? So, my time in Costa Rica, and then more recently, three years uh, living and working as a as a head of school outside of Bogota in Colombia, definitely informed my work in in many many ways. I'm really committed to something you read in my biography, which is this idea that student centered, project based, authentic learning that's really equitable, that really inclusive, that sees every child for who they are and who they want to be, um, should be possible in all socioeconomic situations should be possible to do at a high quality level in any cultural setting. Um, And so in particular, I have a passion for Spanish and for Latin America. I feel I I often say my my hashtag tag would be uh, Latina de corazón, sino de sangre, which means uh, Latina um, in my heart, if not by blood, (laughs) um, because I've spent so much of my life living and working in Latin America. Um, But I also do work outside of Latin America as well. And I think I think that idea that for me, it feels to me that that the future of the world is in the hands of young people um, and that the work that they can be doing and should be doing as young as three or four years old should be grounded in their context, in their community, in what, what the real needs are, whether that's inside their schools or, or in a broader sense of community. Uh, and I really believe in trying to share that idea and, and those practices as broadly as I can. 
you packed so much in there that I want, there's so many things I want to ask now because one, what was your master's in? So my, both my master's and my bachelor's degree were in literature and creative writing. Um, I went to Bard College for my bachelor's, um, which interesting story there too, actually, Barbara, because I graduated high school without a single grade at any point in my entire educational trajectory. So I got to the end. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't have, because that's some time ago. Yes, you this is some time school. ago. That's they why I said. didn't have grades. They didn't yeah. have yeah, this this model, the open school model, was very much based on this idea of the child-centered um, assessment practices as well, right? So my, I didn't have a single grade um, at any point in my education. I never received grades or num- letters or numbers, right? It was all about evaluation in a more authentic way. And after every major project or experience, we would sit in a committee of students and teachers and share our learning and sort of defend what we had learned and how we had grown. And my transcripts for applying to college were 50 pages of written narrative that I had written about all of those experiences across high school. So in 1986, when I graduated from college or from high school, there were two colleges in the United States that would consider a kid without grades and without SAT scores. Because I should clarify, I also refused to take the SATs. (laughs) I I knew instantly, and my advisor and I talked about this a lot, that the kind of intelligence I had and the kind of growth and learning that I had experienced were not going to translate well onto an SAT. Um, And I was that kid who could perseverate forever over a test question, right? Give me five answers. I can still today immediately justify 15 others, right? And I, and I can't find that right answer that the test is looking for. Um, So, so it was Bard and it was Hampshire, right? Those were the two schools that were willing to consider a kid without SATs. And I wrote my uh, entrance uh, essay um, for Bard on why the SATs couldn't capture who I was as a learner. And they, well, they accepted you. So they 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 got it. They did. Well, now it's, I still wonder how many universities would, Except that, because it seems like we're still in this traditional mode with testing and, you know, the types of assessment that summative assessment more than formative. And um, I, I mean, it's a wonderful experience that you had and that you're taking it on with, you know, the other schools that you're working with and what you believe in. I didn't have that. Yeah. I didn't have that, but I was the kind of person that fought the system. I was that misfit. And so you, you went into the, you know, as a educator, you went in to make a difference because of the experiences you had. I went in because of the experience I had and from a different angle and how can we do this? I mean, as a, I mean, I, I, I think I'm going to like keep the how a little later because I'm still excited about one thing. You went for your master's for literature and you thought you were going to be a fiction writer. Have you ever thought you might want to write fiction? You know, I have, and I continue to write fiction occasionally. It doesn't happen as often as the nonfiction writing that I do all the time um, on topics connected to education and society. Um, but I do, I, you know, there, I still do have some of that heart of the fiction writer in me. And of course, having studied creative writing, um, I was able to study with some exceptional um, authors at both Bard and CU Boulder. Um, and my my uh, pretty singular focus on on 
fiction was a strong one, right? It was really very much something that I believed in. But I also felt that I was getting the same critique over and over. And there were two critiques that I kept getting over and over. One was that my characters were too dark and my endings were too unhappy, um, (laughs) which is something that, you know, I still find very funny to think about, right? My my heroes were anti-heroes very consistently, right? And I didn't believe that there were, you know, I believed that Un, unhappy endings were more realistic, perhaps, in the big picture of things. <laughs> um, I know that's a depressing thing to say, but um, there was that. And then the other piece was that I had too much to say. And I actually think that this was a true critique, um, that my fiction was barely shrouding an opinion or a set of ideas that I wanted to convey, as opposed to having a story to tell. Um, yeah. And so my most successful fiction in my mind has always been you know, when I, when I'm just telling a story effectively, and I have a few pieces that I'm very, very proud of that I still haven't published anywhere that I should, I should publish. But I did find that when I started writing nonfiction and focusing on, on education, that I could say what I meant and I could be more direct with my opinions in a way that fiction wasn't allowing me. So, so that that's a long answer to your question. The, The short answer is yes, I absolutely do still see myself as a fiction writer in many ways. Um, I don't know whether I'll produce a novel uh, in my lifetime, I know for sure that I'll write a memoir eventually when I think I've lived enough. <laughs> um, well, you've already got a lot. A lot yeah, to- but I, but I, I do. That is still in my heart on some level, and I loved teaching creative writing. I spent you know nineteen years. That was you know I was teaching literature and analytical writing, but I also had the great great honor of teaching many many young aspiring writers um, and being able to bring their ideas out and help them find that way through uh, a variety of genres of creative writing was a huge, huge um, um, joy for me as an educator. I know how you feel because I'm doing that right now <laughs> uh, with you as one of the writers I, in my book. I'm, I'm doing that one on Grow Your Why and asked you to tell your story. And you told that story about having that dark ending. <laughs> and it is, I mean, what's interesting is that it's okay to be reflective and learn from the experience that you had to take you on to the next level. And I love that you're um, okay about sharing some of the things that may not have worked because that's how we learn. And that's the thing that I love also about the open school is that it gave kids that opportunity to really fail and learn from it because they gave them the time and they asked them things. I mean, it's like, this is all the things that I wrote about in my other two books on personalized learning is how we just got to ask the kids mm-hmm. and we got to get, we got to give them more voice that you also said. So what are you doing now? Where are you working with some schools now? Well, right now, so I'm working on my third book um, right now, um, which will be focused on leaders all over the world who are finding ways to do right by kids. That's the best way to put it. Um, without losing their jobs. <laughs> in other words, oh. <laughs> uh, leaders who are are trying to enact pedagogical or instructional innovations, um, inclusion efforts of one kind or another, um, where they're in a context where there's pushback, where there's resistance to those ideas. Um, and I, it's giving me the opportunity to have so many incredible conversations with so many courageous leaders, some of whom will choose to stay anonymous in the book because 
obviously my intention with the book is to have is to create something that that um, readers, leaders who are reading it can learn from strategies that they can try. Um, and my intention is not to make anything harder for anyone, right? So, so I'm doing a lot of writing, uh, and I'm all, and of course I blog and you know write articles all the time. Um, but in terms of the schoolwork, you know, I do a fair number of conferences a year uh, in different parts of the world, um, and I work pretty in a pretty focused way with several schools in Latin America in particular, um, one in Honduras, a couple in Mexico. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with the Prepa Tech Network in Mexico, which is the Tech de Monterrey's high school network. Um, there are 35 campuses total there um, and uh, several schools in Colombia as well. Um, and so being able to work really, dr- I, I still love the boots on the ground part, right? I, I don't ever want to be an educator who has disconnected so much with what happens actually in the classroom in the schoolhouse that I can't help to uh, teachers to grow their practice. Um, so at the same time that I'm writing about high-level ideas for leaders, I also love, you know, just being in an environment. I was just in Ecuador in August working with a school uh, in Quito, um, you know, with 100 educators in the room who were all trying to make that shift in their practices from the teacher-centered to the student-centered. Um, and it's really powerful. I, I think the writing background maybe helps me in inspire people, um, helps me know how to hook into them in a way that makes them want to make the change. Uh, And so it's been really, really powerful and very gratifying work to do. Well, let's talk about your other two books that you wrote, because those are already out and people yeah. should know about them. Tell, tell us about the, the first book you wrote. So the first book is the Global Education Guidebook. Uh, and this book was written, I wrote it, uh, it published in 2017 with Solution Tree Press. Uh, and it is a book intended to help educators to build partnerships for learning with other communities and experts in the world but with a very particular focus on equity. And this is what I think I brought to the conversation about global education more than anything else, or that I hope any way that I've contributed to the movement was this idea that if what we were doing in in our engagement with the world was, was fixing or saving another community in whatever form that might take, that that was actually going to make the world a worse place on some level, right? That we didn't want, we. I don't believe that we should be raising young people to think they have all the solutions to the problems of the world and can fix other people's problems. That sounds an awful lot like colonialism to me, right? So, uh, so my interest was in how do you build these kinds of partnerships where the learning from and with is at the core, where young people are discovering that every community has leaders with extraordinary ideas and solutions, and they may need some support to enact those solutions. But the assumption that we know better than they are than they do is is a real mistake in my mind. Um, so so that was a, that was my first book. Um, oh, go on. I want to talk about it first. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I like that idea. I mean, I've worked in with different schools around the world also. And I've seen I've seen people come in and say, I can fix it for you. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't worked. And it's been I mean, it it's almost like crushed me when I saw what was going on. And then when I saw other places where like they, someone like you came in and worked with them to do learn with and learn from and learn like they would say, well, we need a well and we don't you know, we we want to build this well. So we have really, you know, the water nearby and whatever. 
they got to do it, but they needed some support with resources and maybe a little direction on how to do it, but not how to fix it. And so I see what you're saying because I've seen it firsthand in lots of different countries and we still do it. We put on projects because I do a lot of work with the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and some people have taken them and ask kids to solve the problem instead of looking at a way that they can be a partner with the people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or work on something locally and be a partner. Exactly. Some of the best examples that I was able to share in the book were exactly what you just said. They were two schools with distinct challenges where the students had decided this is what we want to work on locally, but they were relevant enough challenges for the other community that they could provide feedback along the way, right? Um, One of the examples I use in the book was a partnership between a school here in Denver with a school in in Jordan. Um, And the students in Jordan were concerned about drug use among their peers. They had just lost a a peer to something... uh, I don't remember what the drug was, but to an overdose. Um, And the students here in Denver were really concerned about water and water quality because we just had some mining accidents that had uh, tainted the water. And they were learning about Flint, Michigan and all of these other places, right, where water, bad water was in, in place and they didn't want that to happen in Denver. Well, the students in Denver were working on one problem, but they they shared the challenge of drug use among their peers. They shared the challenge of access to clean water and effective water, right? So they were working on projects that were about local solutions, but they were informing each other along the way. And I think that's a really powerful way to flip the paradigm, to not assume that everybody in the world needs us to fix for them, right? But that we can really learn and and work together. I love this. And your book is, we definitely put a link to it because I I know if people can see this as an adjunct to the, if they're going to teach the SDGs or they're going to look at, you know, project-based learning so it's not teacher directed, it's student, let's say student centered, maybe mm-hmm. student directed would be really nice. Yeah, but really. The, <laughs> so I, I think this is wonderful that at least explaining that part of what your book has, because I think people don't understand some of the concepts. Teachers weren't taught this in their training. Yeah. And so here, you know, having you or others that are actually talking like this and showing it and demonstrating it and have examples and resources and it's what they need. Absolutely. Well, and when I wrote the book, there was a very clear intention. This was the reason that we used the term guidebook, right? The editors and I came to the conclusion that it needed to read like a guidebook in the sense that you could grab it and look at any chapter based on where you were in the work that you were doing. Um, You could, you know, that you could find those strategies that you needed, um, including things like a technology needs assessment, right? What are the things that I need and and that the, or that we need in our school and that the other school needs in order to make sure that this can be an effective an equitable partnership. So yeah, very much designed. It was actually almost a response to the million questions that I kept getting personally. And my effort was, okay, I need to be able to publish something that gives people some of what the answer, those answers might be, right? And that helps to lead them through it. That's what how I wrote some of my books was they were workshops and people ask questions and then people give us resources. I said, that's, we just need to put it out there. So people, because I'm getting the same questions over and over again. Exactly, exactly. Same thing as you. So this other book, 
Yeah. So my second book is The Landscape Model of Learning. Um, this is a, a co-authored project with uh, Dr. Capono Ciotti, who is the executive director of What School Could Be. Um, and it's very much a labor of love. He and I came together around a, a mutual concern about 10 years ago now, uh, a mutual concern that so many educators were identifying their, their goal as access for all students access meaning they have access to the learning. Um, And obviously access is a really important first step, but our concern was that we should really be working towards success for all students with a recognition that success might even look very, very different. It would be as diverse as the students in the classroom. And so the landscape model is, is a response to the way to, it's a it's a it's a reframing of education, basically a recognition that we've built education in a way that feels very much like a racetrack to students and to teachers, where we have students all lined up at, at the same starting line and headed toward the same finish line, generally on on the basis of their age, right? And <laughs> that's about it. Um, and yet, every teacher I know, every educator I know, is aware of the fact that this is a false metaphor because we get into the classroom on the first day of school and we don't have all the kids at the same starting line by virtue of their previous experiences, their cognitive challenges, their their lived experiences, their their access to reading, their lack of access to enrichment experiences. All of those things mean that they're starting from a different point. And and we also know that we have kids who get to that finish line in five days and are ready to for more, right? And we often don't know how to give them more. And we have students who get stuck along the way using that racetrack metaphor. They're stuck in the pit. You know, they can't move forward until the tires are changed. Um, and those students are often really aware of the fact that their peers are circling the track while they're stuck uh, needing extra support. And they can feel that those deficits deeply um, because of the racetrack model for an entire semester, an entire year, sometimes their entire education, right? Um, where they see, feel like everything anybody sees is their weaknesses, um, their areas for growth as opposed to their strengths and talents. So the landscape model is all about reframing learning as happening on a landscape, right? Uh, That we all have different starting places on that landscape, right? That every student comes into the learning ecosystem um, with all of their previous experiences and identities and all of that. Um, So it's all about understanding who they are and what their starting point is. Uh, That students should be moving toward horizons, again, sticking with the metaphor, toward horizons that are appropriate for them, whether we're talking about what their their next appropriate challenge might be, um, but also thinking about their real aspirations and talents and the things that they care about, their why, right, Um, as that emerges in their childhoods. Um, And then finally, that we would um, want to ensure that there are multiple pathways through learning, right? So the third element is about pathways um, using pedagogical structures like project-based learning that allow us to have some some common goals, but also a variety of ways to reach it that are appropriate for um, the individual students involved. So that's a, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> no, no, that's, it's exactly, exactly what I want. I've been trying to transform teaching and learning with that idea that each of us are different and unique. And um, I don't know if you know Todd Rose, uh, but he did the end of average. And and that problem we've had is we've been teaching to the average. And, and, yeah. and, and a lot of our systems are like that. We right. standardize things and then think everybody's going to need the same thing. And it can be in healthcare, it can be in government, it can be whatever. And education is so vital 
we need to do it right. So I love this landscape model. And I know Capono is great. I love that the two of you did this together. It's it, was, it was actually surprisingly easy to work with him as a co-author. I think for both of us, it was a really, uh, not, not that I thought it was going to be hard and I was surprised, but more like we came together around this. I had never co-authored anything before. Uh, I have very strong opinions and I think I do tend to like to control things a little bit more than I would have admitted before writing this book. Um, but by the end of it, he and I both agreed that we couldn't tell anymore who had written which sections because we'd had so much collaboration around every single word that was on the page and because our written voice and our ideas about education were so beautifully aligned. Um, so we we wrote the book in a year and a half without ever being in the same space together. This was during 19, uh, 2021. And we we wrote our proposal at the end of 20 and, and wrote the book, the bulk of the book in 21 and early 22. We're never in the same space together. There's a a perfect advertisement for the power of virtual connection, right? Um, that we were able yeah. to write this entire book together that way. Well, you're you're on my virtual porch, and yeah. I love it. I love it. No, it, what is great is that all of these ideas we've been talking about them for some time, but we never really co- coalesced and put them in, you know, practice, especially in some of the public schools, which we really need. And um, I love that you have these. Uh, um, resources for teachers and leaders. I'm looking forward to this new book that you're, do you know when that might come out or? Well, there, I I do have a a publisher lined up, although I'm not signed yet, so I won't name them just yet. Um, But I will say that, uh, I'll be writing it. I'm, I'm working on it now, right? I'm working on the synopsis and initial interviews. It'll be based entirely, almost entirely on real world case studies of leaders and the work that they're doing and how they're managing to accomplish it. I'll pull in a little bit of theory, but I really want the strategies to come as much as possible from the leaders themselves. Um, and already I've had some incredible um, conversations, uh, a conversation with a woman who is running uh, an educational, regional educational cooperative, for example example in Kentucky, who is simultaneous to their work around deeper learning. Legislature is making it more and more difficult to do anything that's not standardized, right? So, um, you know, somebody who's really pushing hard against uh, against the, the trends, if you will, uh, inside the U.S., um, I've spoken with quite a few um, leaders in Central America, Mexico, uh, Colombia, who are doing extraordinary work around LGBTQ plus inclusion in environments where that is has not generally been even talked about, much less actually addressed at school. Um, and who are again, their their strategies are are what I want to illuminate in this book, so that any leader can pick it up and find ways to address not just short-term fire, you know, putting out the fire kinds of situations, but also those addressing those long-term goals usually connected to their missions that they know are going to push their community in, in certain ways. And so how do we do that effectively? Well, you talked right in the beginning, you mentioned equity and inclusion yes. as a big, you know, something that is really important. And this will be a good book because right now um, we're so divisive in our society and we need ideas. Teachers are amazing, but they're put in awkward positions and leaders too right now. So this will be a wonderful book. Yeah, I hope so. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever. I mean, I love because we, this is the, you know, what I've been working on and realize the only way I could do this is to collaborate with others and to get the word out what people are doing. And I'm really excited. 
that you did that. So is there anything you'd like to leave with my audience and share? Sure. Um, I'm not sure that I've actually said this directly yet in the interview, uh, Barbara, or in the podcast, the conversation. Sorry, it's not an interview. (laughs) I think we often underestimate what young people are capable of contributing. And I think a lot of my work really does come from this idea that I've seen young people as young as three be able to recognize a problem in their environment and and come up with a solution for it, right? Uh, and I've of course I've seen older students do extraordinary work as entrepreneurs. Um, I can share an example in particular of a young woman who I um, had at Caobo, uh, Gimnasio Los Caobos, which is the school that I ran in Bogota who was deeply impacted by seeing uh, images of landslides after rains um, that had destroyed people's homes and killed members of the community and seeing these images of people living, trying to live in these terrible tents and, you know, whatever donated, you know, spaces they could find um, after they had lost everything. And she felt this very deep desire to, contribute something that would make a difference. And she's actually now, she it's patented and they're trying to develop the first production of these dignified homes, small, very small, the, the, the top of it looks a little like the back of an arbadillo, right? So it folds down or collapses down so that you can transport lots and lots of them um, on, on flatbed trucks at once. Um, they can be reused. Um, and and her it's a perfect example of a young person seeing a problem and using the expertise around her and her own knowledge and her own ideas to really build something better than what exists right now, right? Whether that's for natural disasters, climate refugees, or military um, incursions where people are left without their homes. For me, I, I believe that the schoolhouse can be a space for developing and fostering that kind of sensibility and those kinds of skills around problem solving, um, solving real challenges. I know that we have this set of st- these sets of standards around the world that we need to teach. I think those can be folded in. Whether I believe in all of those standards or not, I know that we have to work toward them right now because it's how the system works. So I, I, I guess my, my closing thought would just be to encourage people who are listening to this to really think about the power of the imagination of a young person rather than, than saying, oh, you're too young to, to, to get engaged with these issues. What does it look like when we open those doors and we say, you know what, I'm not going to tell you you can't contribute until after university. I'm going to say, like, what do you think now? How might we make a difference now? Um, and I remember a project at Caobos where the the intention of this, the teachers was to improve the, the lives of farm animals in the area around the school. This was a kindergarten or first grade project. And they went out on a walk to look at the farms and all the kids saw were the homeless dogs. And so it turned into a project on how to help homeless dogs in our area, right? Um, they have that desire to make a difference, right? And so I think an education that engages that desire rather than sort of tamping it down and saying, oh, no, later when you're more educated, you get to contribute is really powerful for students, for teachers, for for the communities that are impacted. I love those examples because that's what I've seen this also. They call it generative curriculum where the they're walking around and they go, oh, look at that. And then they come up with an idea or a solution or something. And I've seen it with three and four-year-olds also. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to really rethink what we're doing. And your ideas are just just wonderful. I, I, I'm so grateful for you to do this. And how can people meet uh, reach you online? 
Well, you can find me, of course, by Googling me, Jennifer D. Klein, and you can find a lot of my writing at Principled Learning, which is uh, Principled Learning Strategies is the small company that I started. Um, And my website contains all of my external publications or online publications, as well as my blog. Uh, My blog tends to be for the pieces that are a little outside of what publishing uh, forums are looking for, either because they're too long or they're too personal or something, (laughs) you know. Um, And so, yeah, you can find me that way. This is the work I do. I'm convinced that this is my purpose, not just to do the writing, but also to support schools through these processes um, and help them shift the culture in their schools and maintain a culture that's student-centered. And I I appreciate your comment too about student-driven, right? Um, I think not every school is ready to go all the way to student-driven, which is why I tend to use student-centered a little more often these days. But I do agree that the goal is student-driven and that the more we can amplify their voices and their protagonism, as we refer to it in the the landscape model, um, the more equitable those learning environments become as well. Oh my goodness. This has just been wonderful. (laughs) <laughs> for me too. I've loved it. Oh, this is just great. So thank you so much for this wonderful conversation on my porch. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Barbara. I really appreciate the invitation. And I, you know, I stand on the shoulders of educators like Arnie Langberg, who who really started a lot of this work, right? Um, these are not new ideas. John Dewey was writing about this. Grace Rotzel, who formed, who, who founded the um, the school in Rose Valley, was writing about this in the 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, it's it's taken us a while. I really, really hope that we're at that point in history where, where it'll start to really spread. Um, and I'm seeing evidence that it's starting to. So, so thank you for inviting me into the conversation. It's so yeah. important. Well, there's also, you mentioned Arnie Langberg. Langberg, yes. Langberg. I think what we want to do is put a link of, he has a new book out you mentioned. He does. Probably put that out on the website also, and, you know, the blog post that we put together. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. I just love this time and uh, we definitely will keep on talking. Excellent. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Jennifer D. Klein. She shared about her extensive international experience of global project-based learning, along with her books, travels, and so much more. I loved our talk on my virtual porch and could have talked with Jennifer for hours. Make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast on barbarabray.net. That way you can access the resources and links that Jennifer shared with me. It would be awesome if you subscribe to my podcast. I'd be really grateful if you wrote a review. Thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story and please stay safe and be well.